Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Welcome to tonight's Walkley Media, Hall, Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Louisa Graham, General Manager of the Walkley Foundation. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Well, tonight we present the latest in our series of public talks in partnership with the State Library. Independently funded, the Walkley Foundation's core mission is to foster excellence in journalism and support a robust and independent media which deepens and enriches democracy. And you've probably all heard of the Walkley Awards, which benchmark excellence. Well, along with our awards, we host an exciting year-round program of industry and public events, innovation showcases, training sessions, we produce the Walkley magazine and facilitate important conversations about the media such as tonight. I encourage you all to visit our website and join our mailing list for information on upcoming events. That's www.walkleys.com. Well, tonight we look at the changing world of the Australian media, famed through the research behind a new book, A Companion to the Australian Media. It's the first comprehensive and authoritative study of Australia's press, broadcasting and news media sectors and a very timely publication given the restructures and fractures within traditional media and the emergence and challenges of new communication technologies. The Companion's 500 entries explore the history of newspapers since the launch of Sydney's first paper in 1803 and cover magazines, radio and television, along with the emergence of the internet and the rapid development of new media. That's a lot of ground to cover, so let's get straight into the, into the discussion. And if you have a question, we will be holding questions at the end, so please wait for the Q&A session and we'll bring around a microphone for you to ask a question. You can also join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Walkleys. And please remember to switch your mobile phones to silent. Now, I'd like, you to, I'd like to introduce you to our chair this evening, and that's Professor Julianne Schultz. Julianne is the founding editor of Griffith Review, a professor at Griffith, Review, a, a professor at Griffith University and chair of the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. A highly regarded public intellectual, Julianne was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2009 for her service to the community as a journalist, writer, editor and academic. She's a member of the Editorial Advisory Board of The Companion and also a contributor to it. So please welcome Julianne, who will introduce the rest of our panel this evening. Thank you, Louisa, and uh, welcome to this, uh, really the first outing that there is for The uh, Companion to Australian me Media. Um, and this will be an opportunity to, uh, to tease you and tempt you to fill in one of the forms to subscribe to get a copy um, before the discount expires tomorrow. So you'll need to uh, fill in the form today. Um, the, the Companion to Australian Media will be published next month. And um, it really, I think, is one of the, the most ambitious undertakings that we've seen in, in, in the study of journalism and the media in this country. It's got 415,000 words, 479 entries, 298 contributors um, in a book that will have 560 pages. It's been published by Australian Scholarly Press. It's been a long time in the planning. Um, 
years ago when I taught journalism at the University of Technology, there was a sort of general argument that was batted around in the in the university environment that, that I was in and more extensively, that really there wasn't much history to be told about Australian journalism and media. Um, nothing much had happened and really there wasn't much to be much to be done. And then I think that the sort of the, the absurdity of that became increasingly apparent and, and Bridget will address that this evening. Um, one of the things that, um, that in my own sort of interest in this area that really developed was in the late 1980s, um, my colleagues Anne Curthoys and Paula Hamilton and I got a quite substantial Australian Research Council grant to begin a sort of history of Australian journalism and we... Um, with our research assistants Kate Evans and Margot Beasley began a very extensive process of doing a lot of interviews with, with people and really trying to put together what at the time we saw as a sort of database. Sadly it was a database in a pre-internet age. <laughs> we had the great idea but the technology was really not anywhere near as sophisticated as, as it needed to be for that to really reach its full potential. Um, so a lot of work was done, but it it, it didn't materialise in the in the full sense that I'm sure in this sort of environment it would now be able to to do so. Um, so Bridget's been planning this for a long time, and she'll tell us about that. But about in 2011, after a couple of years of sort of background work with her advisory group, she convened a meeting at the State Library in Melbourne, and there were scholars, there were eminent elder scholars like Ken Inglis was there. I think it was one of the last, you know, really major contributions we'd seen Ken making making to at a meeting. And there was people like Eric Beecher and there were journalists and there were people who'd been working in this sort of communications and journalism area. It was a, the publisher was there. It was a big meeting and it was sort of... I remember coming away from it thinking, this is mad. If she can do this, I'm going to be really, you know, just so knocked out. So that she's managed to pull together this uh, this whole vast volume in, you know, a few years is an extraordinary tribute to, to Bridget and, and the team that she's been working with. Um, I first met Bridget um, in, uh, well, I think it was the late 80s. She thinks it was the early 90s, so I'm prepared to go with her. Um, when I was um, at the Centre for Independent Journalism, which we'd set up not long before, and it, the centre at that stage had a sort of threefold mission. One was to do research into journalism practice. One was to do professional development along the lines of what the Walkley Foundation now does, um, and the other to be a place where independent investigative journalism could be published. And it was it was an exciting time, but it was partly because it was this merging between in journalism and, and other areas of the academy. Um, and so it was really exciting. I remember Bridget coming to see us and she was immaculately turned out as ever. And and Anne Curthoys and I were saying, this this girl's got a lot of energy. She's going to do a lot of stuff. So, we, so it's again, the, it's the, the early gone. signs were there. <laughs> <laughs> so let me formally introduce, um, introduce Bridget. She's now the director for the Centre of Media History at Macquarie University and a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and obviously an editor of uh, the editor of this companion that we published next month. Her books include Sir Frank Packer, A Biography, Changing Stations, A Story of commercial, Australian Commercial Radio, Party Games, Australian Politicians and the Media from War to Dismissal, Sir Frank Packer, The Young Master and The House of Packer. So Bridget's um, really made a major contribution in, in a very short, short period of time. Please welcome her this evening. 
Now, I met Gerard Noonan even longer ago than that, which is a bit of a worry. Um, in the late 1970s, um, he and I were both working in Melbourne, both covering state politics and industrial relations, which was then a round, um, rather than something one covered at Royal Commissions. Um, and Gerard was at AAP and I was at the Financial Review. And I just had decided, as young journalist did at the time, that I wanted to go overseas. So um, he said, oh, I don't prefer to work at the Financial Review. So I spoke to the various powers that be in Melbourne and said, oh, this guy would be quite good. And he stepped into the job. Little did I know that not so many years later he'd be editor. <laughs> Um, but uh, he's now um, the the chair of the uh, $4 billion industry superannuation fund, Media Super, and he's been a journalist with over 30 years' experience at the highest levels of Australian media. Until 2011, he wrote and, and section edited at the Sydney Morning Herald, and as I mentioned, he'd been a, the editor of the Australian Financial Review in the early 1990s. He was awarded the Walkley Award for Outstanding Contribution to Journalism in, in 2008, and completed, and a couple of years earlier, completed a master's at the University of Sydney. His thesis was on the influence of the Australian Financial Review on public policy, and it was, as you would expect, supervised by Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a small world. Um, Gerald Stone has been an influence on me um, since the early days of deciding to be a journalist. Um, and I didn't really realise that until I was looking at the list of books that, which I will go through later, um, the books, list of books he published, because one of the ones that he wrote in the early 1960s, or mid-1960s, was on the Vietnam War. Um, and I remember it being set as a journalism course book when I was studying journalism at the University of Queensland in the mid-1970s. So you, you, there you go. <laughs> I hope you got your royalties or your, your cal checks. Um, he was also involved in covering the, the, um, the freedom right to Moree so, and made very important connections, I think, at that time. Um, he featured as one of the people in my book, The Reviving the Fourth Estate, as one of those who created tipping points in the professionalisation and growing independence of journalism in Australia in the late 20th century. He's widely known, obviously, as the founding executive producer for the Nine Network's top-rating 60 Minutes, and in that capacity is credited with changing the face of Australian TV journalism. Before that, he'd been one of the original reporters on, this, on the ABC's groundbreaking The State and Night. He's also served as editor-in-chief of the Bulletin magazine and has worked worked internationally both before he came to Australia and subsequently. Um, he was also uh, deputy chair of SBS. Now his books include, and this is at least almost as impressive as Bridget's, um, War Without Honour, which was the 1966 book about Vietnam, Compulsive Viewing, the Inside Story of Packers Nine Network, Singo Mates, Wives and tri Triumphs and Disasters, 1932, a, year, a Hell of a Year, and Who Killed Channel Nine, The Death of Kerry Packer's Mighty TV Dream which sort of helps explain why he's the only person in The Companion who's both contributed to The Companion and has an entry about him in it. <laughs> um, which so he hasn't yet seen, I don't think. So we <laughs> I have a copy. <laughs> a reward at the end of the night. Isn't Nick Heard here um, who wrote the entry? He he was hoping to come, but he's okay. not, so there won't be any confrontation at the end of the night. Oh, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very nice entry. So, Bridget, can, maybe you can tell us about the impulse for creating the companion, and you know how you how you went about it. Thanks, Julianne. I, and I should acknowledge that um, Julianne has been something of an inspiration to me since the 1990s, um, when I set out to 
write as a PhD thesis a history of consolidated press, knowing that there were people then at, at UTS like um, Julianne um, Anne Curthoys and Paula Hamilton working on a history of Australian journalism was a tremendous um, bolster for me, both um, in, in a professional sense um, and a sort of recognition of, of the importance of this area. Um, I, um, well, by um, the, uh, I guess, 2008, I was thinking of another research project. Um, by this stage, I'd written about the um, Packer Company in particular. Um, I'd written what I regarded and what I thought would be my biggest book, which was Changing Stations on Australia's Commercial Radio Sector, 260 radio stations. I didn't think I could do anything harder. And I wasn't actually fully aware when I embarked on this, just how mad it was, as Julianne <laughs> says. Um, I, I guess by this stage I had a fairly good sense and the Centre for Media History was established in 2007 and I had a reasonable sense of the gaps in the field in Australia but I also had a fairly good sense of what scholarship was out there, not just published in the form um, of books, journal articles, conference papers but also theses. And I guess I could have embarked on something like um, a monograph by myself about the history of whether it be the Australian press or the history of the Australian news media. But I was really interested in harnessing um, the work that I think had been appearing really since the formation of the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism. Um, there'd really been a sort of substantial increase in scholarship on the Australian media. I'm thinking of major books by the wonderful Ken Inglis um, on the ABC, um, the two books on Fairfax by Gavin Souter, um, Robin Walker's book on books on the press in New South Wales, the um, work on press history in Queensland and in New South Wales by Dennis Cryle and Rod Kirkpatrick. So I began to think of the, well, I guess I'd always conceptualise the Australian media as this sort of um, patchwork of outlets, of interests, of pressure groups, um, of sort of public advocacy. And I started to think of something like The Companion. Um, there um, was quite a well-established tradition of these edited reference works in Australia. There were Oxford and Cambridge companions to, to music, to film, to um, the high court, to politics, to, to gardening. And I thought, why isn't there one on the media and communications in Australia? Um, so I went to the aforementioned Australian Research Council with a proposal for um, funding for a project such as this with a fellowship for me so that I would have, you know, up to five years to work on it because I, I did know it was big, maybe not quite so big at that point. Um, and I... Um, decided to use this as an opportunity to sort of harness the scholarship that was already out there, but also as an opportunity to commission um, new scholarship on all of those sort of significantly neglected areas that I and other colleagues were aware of. So that was really the impetus for this. And so having you're filling in the gaps and you're capturing what's already known. So how did you decide on the topics? I mean, was that you know that was that must have been a really difficult sort of task. I remember that meeting in in Melbourne. Um, you know, one of the suggestions that came up was about including individual entries as well as you know topics and 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 publications and and other outlets. Mm. So how did you go through that in your own head of, of working out the what is it three hundred odd um, topic areas? Yeah, um, four seventy nine. <laughs> um, 
no, that's all right. Um, and a few did creep in at the end, so that's why the numbers were a little bit fluid. My life ended up becoming a numbers game. How many entries? How many words? How many entries do I have to edit today? You know, how many do I have to do this week to meet the 1st of May deadline for the book? Um, I thought about it really for a couple of years and I just kept mapping things out. Obviously, by the time I put in the grant application, I'd sort of mapped out um, areas that I wanted to commission entries in. Um, one area was biographical, which we might come come back to because that proved to be a really kind of interesting and quite challenging area to decide about and commission in. I wanted entries on geographical areas. Um, the history of the media um, in um, Western Australia and the Northern Territory, for instance, is incredibly ne neglected. So I wanted to um, uh, commission entries about um, broadcasting and about the press in every state across Australia. How I guess I, um, you know, there were issues such as women in the media, there were um, uh, regulatory bodies such as um, ACMA, there were um, industry groups, trade unions, there were, um, you know, entries on printing. I mean, it was a matter of kind of thinking, what does the media landscape look like? Clearly, the first key question was to work out what is actually the companion, what, what is the media? And I defined it as essentially the news media, press, radio, television, new media, which was a challenge for me, but I specifically excluded um, um, music and film um, because um, of the types of media that they are, but also because there were significant reference works um, on those areas already out there. Um, and the other thing that I did was very much begin this project as picturing the Australian media when I first started this, it was 2008, thinking of what the media was like in 2008 and working backwards. So even though I'm a historian used to working um, forwards, I actually started with a contemporary picture and then tried to develop a taxonomy that kind of um, captured what I thought were all of the key um, bodies, really iconic outlets, iconic or controversial individuals, etc. in 2012 and then sort of work, work backwards to earlier in the 20th century and back into um, into the 19th century. So one of the things that I think was most, uh, that's, that's I think is quite intriguing about it, is that you've got academics, you've got scholars, you've got um, practitioners, you've got journalists, you've got, you've got a real mix of different types of people and from different backgrounds contributing, which is unusual. I mean, you look at that, you talk about those other companions, the companion to literature or music or whatever. I mean, they're very scholarly enterprises, generally written by eminent people in, in the various fields. What was the, your thinking behind that in terms of having this really quite diverse mix of people involved in the, in the writing? And then what were the issues that that then presented? Um, um, I, I think that... Um, when I, well, perhaps at the end of the day, I'm just a frustrated journalist. My, you know, my grandfather was a founding member of the Australian Journalists Association. My late father was a um, journalist and, um, and, and editor. I discovered along the way in researching my last book that he actually um, was the first editor of broadcasting and television, the periodical in, I think, 1950. I didn't know that. Um, so I have to say, this is the fifth book that I've, obviously I haven't written it, but I've been sort of essentially really closely involved with. And this is the first one where I've allowed a mention of my own father to go in. There's never been the words in earlier books. Um, but I think um, I've always um, thought that it's really important to 
um, listen to people in the industry and not just write about them without engaging with them. So, I mean, there's different sort of forms and levels of engagement. You know, you can interview them and we, as many of us as academics, actually do that. But as it came to um, commissioning this book, I had a commitment from quite early on to actually bring in um, uh, media practitioners so many of them had already written fine scholarship about the Australian media from um, Gavin Souter, who I mentioned earlier, the absolutely superb author, um, author of the superb um, two-volume history um, of Fairfax. Um, more recently, um, Gerald himself with his, um, his books on um, Channel 9 with, you know, Australian commercial television history being so appallingly neglected. So I, I wanted to um, harness the expertise of people like that. And I did also want to um, use academics to referee the work of um, media practitioners and the other way around. So, for instance, um, I mean, refereeing is generally a kind of something that's done anonymously, but there were cases where I would say to an author, would you mind if I had X read this? Um, so, for instance, with the industrial reporting entry, which was written by um, Glenn Mitchell, a historian at the University of Wollongong, um, I asked him if Jared could read it and Jared gave, you might want to talk about this, Jared, some, some very good um, advice for um, reflecting in particular on um, the growing importance of the round in, in Melbourne. Um, and so, I mean, th there were all sorts of different challenges. I think the interests of the media practitioners and, and the academics are somewhat um, complementary. There were some people in the media who were nervous about doing research, but I could, you know, what do investigative journalists do but research? Um, it was a matter, I think, of instilling confidence in in both sides that that they could do it. And there are a lot of people who sort of crossed the great divide, such as yourself, Julianne, who's you know worked a, as a public intellectual and has had a range of different roles in the media, but but also in academe. Jared, do you want to pick up on that about the the, the refereeing process? Uh, um. It's an odd thing Glenn's to be. Not here, I take it. It's an odd, th <laughs> odd thing to be reminded of um, uh, writing as an industrial relations writer. Uh, I don't think the word industrial relations means anything anymore because they, they tend to be workplace writers, or and so it's gone gone out of vogue as a as a round. Uh, look, uh, only the only reflection is that there's a there's always been a tension between in the in the great sort of public institutions in Australia between Sydney and Melbourne, and one of the advantages I or disadvantages. Um, perhaps was to be brought up in Melbourne and, and to be a young journalist in Melbourne. And so the big institutions in industrial relations were actually in Melbourne and there was this kind of odd tension between the big national institutions, the ACTU, the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission, the Confederation of Australian Industry, so, so Labor and Capital, those big sort of, and then the umpire, if you like, they're all Melbourne-based, much to the annoyance of both the Sydney world but the Sydney journalism world. So the first, many here in the room would probably know Matthew Moore, who's a long, long-standing uh, journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. He's, he left a year or so ago. He and I met first in Melbourne because he'd been sent by the Sydney Morning Herald down to Melbourne to cover industrial relations. And he then met Julianne and others uh, who were involved in it. So there was sort of an odd um, tension, not very often referred to, in fact, um, about the way the media needs to cover national institutions and hardly any of them were actually in Canberra. They were nearly all elsewhere back in, in that era. 
Well, in that era, they, the the banks were all in Melbourne as well, which That's was right. yeah. yeah. Um, so, you're just picking up from what Bridget was saying before about that sort of mixture of you know academics and journalists writing together. I mean, I, from from what I know of your arrival in Australia <laughs> as a journalist, you know, the notion that that you could have had academics and journalists working together on such a sort of project would have been seemed like a very far flung and unlikely. Impossible. <laughs> Impossible. I, I, I came out here in, in the 60s as a, as a, um, a migrant, uh, really a refugee from the Cold War because uh, I had been working in New York uh, covering the United Nations when Khrushchev banged his shoe against the, a very famous incident. Um, and I thought it was an unhealthy attitude to bring up my kids in. And I, I saw Australia, I, you know, because I was on the foreign desk of UPI, I saw that it was a pretty quiet country and it was okay with fallout patterns and so on like that. <laughs> so I, 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 I came out um, and I loved everything and uh, my wife did too, but we loved everything we saw about uh, the country, the, uh, the people, you know, the, the sunshine, the, the, the atmosphere, the relaxation, the, the, to go to the beach and, and see these people living in such relaxed circumstance compared to the pressures that were on in America and sort of the neuroticism that uh, you get in New York and so on. Anyway, um, it wasn't long before I started work for the Daily Mirror when a fellow named Zell Rabin had just taken over. Um, and uh, they sent me down to Melbourne to cover some big press conference. I think it might have been the one millionth Holden coming off the line, something like that. Um, and then as journalists did, oh, I, re I remember that one incident there because uh, this was right before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and one of the questions asked by an Australian uh, reporter was, in case of a Third World War, uh, what will be the availability of Holden parts? <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, uh, after the conference, uh, 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 as Australian uh, journalists did in those days, they all went off the pub, and I was delighted to be invited along. Uh, but I was getting more and more anxious because uh, as they got into their drink, they started complaining about everything. You know, this is a boring country, uh, the food is lousy, uh, the Sheilas are too uh, conceited, uh, you know, the unions are wrong and the politicians are corrupt. And, and being the sincere, frank American that I was, I finally broke in and said, look, the trouble with you Australians is you're always knocking your own country. There was dead silence, and then one of them looked at me and said, if you don't like it, mate, why don't you piss off? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the flavor of Australian journalism then, because a lot of them were real, you know, roughheads, uh, uh, just guys who uh, came along, uh, not university educated, certainly. Uh, there were some of them, great ones, like Murray Sale and, uh, and Philip Knightley. Uh, but uh, they were g generally uh, not what you'd call educated, highly educated, and they certainly didn't have much in common with uh, academics with their beards. They all saw academics <laughs> uh, as beards. Um, but, uh, we, we, you know, they, they, we, we got along fine. The, uh, what I found about Australian journalists, uh, again, comparing them to Americans as Americans so, you know, sincere, Australians so skeptical. Uh, and, 
and, and sort of uh, practical-minded about things. And it's that skepticism that made them such good journalists, really good journalists, and, and journalists who uh, made their mark in London and, and uh, New York and all the uh, you know press yeah, capitals. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, so it's a very different sort of milieu. But one of the things that I'm interested in, and you've written the, the uh, entry on Bruce Gingell. Um, so in that in milieu, there are obviously strong individuals who made a difference. I mean, they changed the scene or they... they oh, yes. And I'm sort of interested in how that happens. I mean, you might want to reflect a bit on Bruce's contribution. Well, Bruce is very interesting because he's mostly remembered as the first face on Australian television. Um, but he did much, much more than that. I mean, that, that was uh, small um, potatoes compared to what he managed to achieve in his, uh, his early career. Uh, because in those days, television was, uh, uh, was owned by... Uh, the newspaper proprietors, they owned all the big licenses, the big moguls, uh, and they weren't interested in seeing television succeed because they saw it as a competition to newspapers. So, they, you know, they were happy to have be watched and so on and take their money from the advertisements, but they weren't interested in, in improving anything. And so Bruce found himself uh, directly at loggerheads with Sir Frank Packer, who was uh, then the owner of Channel 9, Sir pa Frank not only didn't want to spend money on anything, if he could help it, he'd, he'd be happy to run, run I Love Lucy for the... It'd still be on. If, <laughs> it is. <laughs> isn't it? It is. It's still on. Um, but Bruce stood up to him, and um, uh, he, he found ways to get around Packer. Uh, Packer would call up at uh, night, uh, drunk uh, at home, uh, and say, get that thing off the road, and, you know, off, off the air, and Bruce would say, no, I won't. And finally, because of that interference, he left. He went on to uh, do great things for Channel 7 and then great things overseas, come back here and uh, uh, found the SBS. So mm -hmm. he, he's quite a yeah, remarkable yeah, absolutely character. absolutely remarkable yeah. man. So I'm interested in that, and, and both you and Bridget might like to buy it in this, um, of, of just how important those individuals are, those individuals with, you know, strong character, a clear sense of what they want to do, and, and how even in that sort of quite, you know, rigid sort of media environment they're able to prevail and, and you know, things change. Well, I'll, I'll just give a short story and then I'd rather hear more profound <laughs> things. But I, I happen to have um, uh, the experience of working with both Carrie uh, Packer and Rupert Murdoch when they were young proprietors. And it was interesting to see the two of them. Uh, uh, Rupert, uh, being brought up by the father, was, was a very confident man. Carrie uh, took over the uh, Channel 9 after his father's death and was very unconfident. Um, but they were great motivators, both of them, uh, in their own separate ways, quite di different kettles of fish. Um, uh, Carrie yelling and screaming, but at the same time you knew he was looking at everything and you liked him. Uh, Rupert, very cool-headed and a much greater businessman, I think. Uh, but they were two examples of, uh, of the influence that mm. they had on mm. Australia. Mm. Bridget, do you Yes, thanks, Julianne. I, I mentioned earlier the, um, or I, I touched on the challenges of um, biographical entries in the companion. Um, obviously, um, in the process of editing a work such as this, there um, always um, hanging over our head was the issue of the ultimate word constraints. Uh, so should you know, potentially tens of thousands of words be um, expended on biographical entries, um, particularly when there is this um, magnificent reference work um, in Australia called the Australian Dictionary of Biography. Um, I always had in mind um, sort of family or dynastic 
entries and that's one thing that distinguishes this volume somewhat from the ADB, which is generally, not invariably, but it's generally about individuals. Um, so um, I commissioned entries on the major uh, media dynasties, the Packers, the Murdochs, the Fairfaxes, the Symes, etc. Um, but also on um, provincial newspaper families, um, sort of mini titans in, um, in their own right. Um, I did, as a result of that um, board meeting uh, Julianne referred to in Melbourne, actually increase the number of biographical entries somewhat. So of the, about one-fifth of the entries are biographical. They're either on um, families, dynasties or, or on in individuals. Um, and clearly, you know, hundreds of other individuals are referred to throughout the companion and picked up on in the excellent um, index um, that you will soon see. Um, uh, yes, I think in the Australian media landscape, the, the role of the individual is um, absolutely crucial, whether that be in relation to um, some early colonial newspapers, which were essentially one-man shows um, that in a number of instances died, but in a number of instances went on to become the foundation of, you know, um, provincial, um, regional, rural um, media groups, not necessarily just in the press, but with tentacles um, extending into the um, radio and television sectors. Um, I, like um, Gerald, has, has a particular interest in the Packers. And I think, you know, in, in the early 21st century, where we've, um, to some extent, we've seen the decline of the Australian media dynasties. Um, for all of the faults of the Packers, the Murdochs, perhaps the Fairfaxes, they did, I think, offer a degree of stability to the Australian media landscape and to their employees. Um, you know, there, there was kind of a genuine commitment to um, to print or, in the case of Packard, to actually... Or Frank Packard, to... Um, television, well, more Kerry Packer actually, television, which which, which he absolutely loved. Um, and we've sort of seen a breakdown of that, well, certainly in relation to the, the Fairfaxes with the disastrous privatisation um, under Warwick Murdoch. And we've kind of seen, um, well, there's been a plethora of, of, of books in the last couple of years all about the sort of fall of Fairfax. And that's been since the family largely moved out of the group. Um, so it's really now only in Australia, in terms of the sort of metropolitan media landscape, the provincial's a bit different, but um, it's it's the Murdochs who are the, you know, the, the family that remains committed to print. Um, and that's why I think, you know, there's there's so much of an expectation that, you know, the, the Australian in particular and newspapers will keep going under Rupert and a kind of question mark about what will happen um, once, you know, he, he departs. Um, so I, that's very much tied to, to mm. the role of the individual mm. and, and, and the passion of the individual. Do you, either you want to comment on that? No. Look, I was just struck by um, the reference to, you know, sort of strong figures. One, one that, uh, that leaps out to me, who's actually bridged the two major newspaper groups, uh, is a person called Max Newton. And one of the, um, the, the things that I enjoyed, I must say, uh, doing what was actually not a PhD thesis, it was actually a rather extended master's thesis that I kept on trying to um, contain, was that Max Newton um, was, has the odd distinction of being the founding editor of the only two national newspapers in Australia. 
So he, he was actually the he wasn't the founding editor of the Financial Review. Uh, it, it was started as a weekly, but when it went daily, he was the editor. He, he first of all took it bi-weekly. He was a young tyro in the Fairfax operation, uh, but then he actually started it as a as a as a daily, or he he was commissioned to start it as a daily. But within a year, he'd been lured away by Rupert Murdoch uh, to start up this odd thing called the Australian originally in Canberra until they realised that there's a thing called fog in Canberra so they couldn't actually get the publication out of Canberra each night so that they then shortly afterwards started to print it in Sydney. But so Max Newton was this sort of odd character, brilliant, mad. Mm. Uh, he ended his life, sorry, he, he towards the end of his life he was certainly mad I think. I mean you, he used to write a column for the, um, for the Australian at the end and it was yeah. unreadable. Yeah. And he ran brothels and did sort of mad things in his in the latter part of his life. But he was this sort of brilliant driver. Now he wasn't, you know, one of the the big families. He was this sort of, but he 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 certainly has shaped journalism yeah. in Australia. Interesting. I, yeah. I have yeah. one name to mention. Uh, we should talk about reporters because uh, I also was very close uh, to Alan Reed, uh, and here's a, a reporter who actually influenced uh, Australian politics, uh, had an active influence. I know, know others did, but uh, never to the extent yeah. of Alan Reid. One of the things that's interesting, I mean, a lot of the work that's been written about the media in Australia has focused on those families and the dynasties. And, you know, to some degree, it 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 covers or speculates about that sort of exercise of political power. Um which, I mean, is an interesting interesting subject. Jared, I wanted to bring you in here by talking a little bit about the Financial Review because, you know, whereas the Fairfax um, organisation, you know, which had very clear political, uh, a very clear political agenda, which was quite happy to exercise through, through, the pa through its papers, the Financial Review had a public policy sort of agenda which was not necessarily the same as, as the views that were shared by the family. Um, so I'm interested in that. That's a, that's a different sort of model in a way. Yeah. Look, uh, the one thing about the financial review is unusual in this sense. You're talking about 1951. I remember it because I was born that year, so you can work out how old I am. Um, actually, I don't remember it then, but um, I, re I remember <laughs> the told. date. I remember the date. Um, so it's why does it start up? It doesn't start up for any grandiose reasons. It starts up because the Sun, the afternoon newspaper here in Sydney in those days, which was owned by a British company called Associated Newspapers, was going to introduce a financial news, uh, financial weekly. And so the Herald, the Sydney Morning Herald, or the Fairfax, the Fairfaxes, were terrified that they were going to lose their kind of legitimacy in the in the area of finance. Uh, and so that they they hired this fellow. Um, to, who actually came from The Economist, an Australian guy. He was actually a very fast runner, strangely enough, a guy called Jack Horsfall, to come over here and start up this newspaper to sort of to head off that problem. So it was basically... That's a, a time-honoured tactic. Time-honoured tactic. Yeah. Um, in fact, it, the reason they went bi-weekly a little later on under, under um, Max Newton, whom we were talking about before, was the same thing. The Packers, by this stage, had decided to import the Financial Times into Australia or publish the Financial Times and... Weekly, so that they then went bi-weekly, so there was this sort of rival rivalry. But the moment that the Financial Review started, it had very, very low circulation. Um, it was a weekly, but it had a, it was circulating at about ten thousand copies, at a time when the City Morning Herald, the Age, uh, most of the the, after, the 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 tabloids had circulations of in in the order of three hundred thousand. So it was in that order. Um, so it's a tiny publication. It starts. It it flukes its opening gambit by covering 
1951 budget. Hopefully, none of you remember that. But anyway, it was a it was a massive budget in that year. It was this massive contractionary budget, not unlike the one that we've just had. Um, and so they were able to, you know, it, luck. You know, they, they made its own luck. So with this tiny circulation, you had this group of people putting together this publication and trying to cover the City Morning Herald's brief, in other words, try to preserve, preserve that. But within days, of course, like you know, rival journalists, this incredible tension between the City Morning Herald as the mothership and the financial review as this kind of upstart. And so to actually create a space in the world, it started to write about things that the City Morning Herald and Tom Fitzgerald, who was the finance editor of the City Morning Herald, didn't write about. And so it, it, it went into other areas. Um, some of it was, you know, kind of news you could use for business. A lot of it was, you know, in, the, in that. Um, but it, it decided that it, it was able to carve out what was then a quite new area. Certainly in Australia, it was a quite new area. And it was, that was the reason that the Packers and Associated Newspapers mm. were trying to get into it here. So now, for a long period, it didn't succeed. It was... It, that 10,000 circulation kind of crept its way up to 20,000 um, and then they made a mistake and they kept the price of the publication when they went daily in 1963 uh, they kept the price of the publication the same for each day and it nearly went broke so you know there was but by the time by the time you hit the 19 mid 1960s and 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 certainly the 1970s it had carved out this world where it was able to juggle sort of stock market coverage so you had the sort of the right the, the the rise of the of the citizen as a stock owner and so that was that that underpinned its circulation but it had a kind of an, an odd view about various things in australia that no one else did because it was national one of which was it was very skeptical about state governments now the city morning herald the age the the, the sun the mirror that you used to work on gerald um and the Adelaide Advertiser and, and Murdoch's son over in Adelaide, uh, the Courier Mail in, in, in Queensland, they were never going to write about the weakness of state governments because they owed their fealty to you know the states. And so you had this sort of odd national position which just happened to coincide with a kind of a rising sense of the importance of kind of national institutions. Well, and it was also a period of, of, of reforming institutions. I mean, there, there were a lot of inquiries in that sort of 60s and into the 70s yep. period, you know, which really set the framework for a lot of the reforms that happened much subsequently. But, but the Financial Review was probably, I think, the only paper that was really engaging seriously with, with what was a pretty sort of intellectual yep. um, pursuit by, by, you know, pretty serious-minded folk. Really. We'll take one example. There's an institution called the Industries Assistance Commission, which actually was the Industries Demobilisation Commission, really. But anyway, it was called. It had, as usual, had the wrong name. Um, it was a very, oh, very akin to the Productivity Commission. Yeah, that's right. Mm. It's a modern, the modern. It was a, the precursor. Pre precursor mm. to that. Um, it was very dry, um, uh, and um, actually, one of its one of the commissioners eventually became one of the editors of the um, the Financial Review. But it used to talk about a thing called tariffs. Now, Julianne and I remember this because the last thing anybody on the, on the Financial Review wanted to do was go on the tariff round because it was kind of like, God almighty, tariffs. And like, well, A, what is a tariff? And B, kind of, if you want to really bore people at a party, start talking about tariffs. <laughs> and so we, we all, you know, ran a mile from, any, from, from that. But it specialised in tariffs. And you know what? 
it, that mattered heaps to business, whether the tariff regime was X, Y or Z. It mattered to, you know, the car industry. It mattered to... And it mattered to the policymakers because it meant trying to find ways of removing them, which was the sort of right. political so agenda. That's right. There was, was this kind of... Net, and so here... Well, here and an, another really weird one was <laughs> seasonally adjusted statistics. Now, I mean, you know, again, if you want to really bore people at parties, try, try that one as well. It's a bit like superannuation. Yeah. I work in superannuation these days and that really turns people off. Jerry, I think you've got a, you, you may have hit on something here which you, we, we maybe shouldn't inquire into too far. <laughs> but anyway, so, so things like that, seasonally, like yeah. imagine that being a topic, but it's an important issue because it went to the veracity of, you know, kind of how you measure things. It went to the nature of the Australian Bureau of Statistics and so on. So there was a publication that chose its target uh, and... Yeah. I remember when... I remember when Max Walsh hired me and he said, oh, what, what this publication does is it's, it's inside the cub speaking out so we can do things and write about things which would otherwise not be not be available because they're, they're not of general interest. You know. And the, the response, you know, for young journalists would be, oh, look, we've got this story on our own. You know, we've got a real exclusive on this. Well, that's actually because nobody else could give, <laughs> give a rats about it. But it was our exclusive, you know, which was quite nice. Um, it, it, yeah, Juliana, it was, it was great being able to draw on on um, Jared's research and his own sort of um, experiences as a former editor of the Fin Review to um, obviously the the thesis that he wrote, which you thought containing the Fin to twenty thousand words was difficult. In when we worked together in the early noughties. ten years later, I made him contain um, limit himself to I think. 1,250 words, or was it? A bit yes. under that, actually. Yeah. It was a bit, yes, I have a horrible feeling it was closer to 1,000 words. Um, I mean, that, that's sort of an instance of a media practitioner bringing to bear their experience and insights um, um, in the field of Australian media history. But um, and, and there are a number of sort of institutional histories of things. I'm guilty of writing one myself about um, Consolidated Press. But it was even more difficult to find authors for um, more general overviews. Um, one of the entries I really struggled to find an author for was for um, an overview of the history of business and finance reporting in Australia. And another one on economics reporting, I did eventually secure Ross Gittins for that. And I persuaded an, um, uh, an Australian journalism professor who since moved to the UK, Michael Bromley, to work on the um, the business and economics reporting entry. But, you know, it, it, it was a struggle for him. It was a struggle for me to find someone willing to do it. Um, and it really pointed out to me, um, in spite of the terrific work that um, Julianne and her colleagues did in the 1990s on the history of Australian journalism and, and the really important book that they edited, um, Journalism, Print, Politics and Pop um, Popular Culture. Culture. Mm published by UQP, the publishers in the audience. Um, in spite of that, um, 15 years later, there is still um, something of a dearth of scholarship on the history of Australian journalism. Yes. Yeah. And um, I commissioned a whole range of entries on what I called reporting genres or reviewing genres. So the reviewing ones were on, you know, arts reviewing, book reviewing, ex, um, film, etc., etc. And there were reporting ones on, you know, there's a wonderful entry on news reporting by um, John Henningham from the J School in, in Queensland. But um, there's a terrific entry on environmental reporting um, by Libby Lester. But there are about 10 of these entries and finding expert authors was tremendously difficult and finding authors who were actually willing to do the kind of the 
actual primary research going back to yeah. the 19th century. Yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that um, some of these um, pieces, which I'd sort of refer to as mid-length entries in the, in the companion, as I say, my life became dictated by numbers, I'd like to think that these might um, point to areas of interest and importance that, that could be explored by, by future scholars. Mm -hmm. Now, we should open this to questions from the audience. I mean, I'd like to ask each of the people, um, each of the guests, to reflect a bit on where they see the future, having done this long, deep delve into the into the past. But before we get to that, um, has anyone got any questions they'd like to ask about particular... Yeah, the... Hi. I was just wondering, you talk a bit about um, the boring topics before, for example, superannuation. And I was thinking more in terms of the actual content rather than the history of reporting on it. These days, I think, especially with digital media, there's a need to sort of produce lots of content all the time. And you see things that aren't necessarily news articles on news sites a lot. And I'm thinking, especially targeting younger audiences, things, you know, 10 ways to do something, tips for this, how do you how do you do something? And I was just wondering about your opinion on um, that kind of content versus, you know, hard news or investigative journalism. Have, have, leave that to the have practitioners. I, I've probably cornered the market in boring topics, have I? Uh, <laughs> in super, uh, look, it goes to a little to the... There's certainly been a change that, you, that having specialty journalists writing on rounds, if you like, or what we used to call rounds, or beats, as the Americans call them, um, that's certainly diminished um, as the, in particular, the newspaper um, finances or the structure of the, the economic viability of newspapers has been under s such stress. So you've had much more general reporting, much more many more people who just simply haven't got the time to concentrate on those particular rounds, I mean, like superannuation or like industrial relations, or but there are many others of them as, as well. Um, so, the um, it, it perhaps goes to Julianne's you know challenge to us about where things are going. I I do see that as being pretty problematic for um, the kind of quality of journalism that we that we've written about that we've you know in, in an area from from whence we came. Well, here's here's an easy example. Sydney Morning Herald, uh, when I left Sydney Morning Herald three or four years, four or five years ago, had something like 350, it was closer to, it was up towards 400 journalists working there. Now, in a period of four years, it, it's closer to 250. Most American newspapers have 150 and they're going downwards. Now, we all know as professional journalists that you, you, you just need a lot of bodies on the ground to cover this sort of stuff and they're not there anymore. And those that are there are providing information not for a nightly news feed to the following morning's paper, but they're following stuff all day. So it's become a very tense and much more tense um, environment to be, to be operating as a journalist in on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, and the opportunity for the kind of reflection that someone like Julianne or Gerald or myself has had because there was time available, it just isn't there anymore. And that's, I don't know where that, I think there's a period ahead when our quality of journalism will be under a lot of stress. Well, I'm not really in a position too much to answer that because as a television person, 
uh, we have a certain motto. Don, Don Hewitt, who is the uh, original founder of the American 60 Minutes, um, had a simple saying. He said, uh, very few people are interested in flood control, but everybody's inter interested in the story of Noah. Um, and, t and, and he meant by that you've got to humanize these things to get people to uh, really appreciate them. And I think perhaps sometimes uh, in, in following, as newspapers will, um, a very rigid idea of, um, yes, this is a very technical subject and we'll handle it in a technical way, um, they're missing out on some of the techniques to tell a story that would still get audiences interested. Um, then television is supposed to be superficial, isn't it? Mind you, there's a, there's a, the, the, the flip side of that has been, the, has been some of the sort of ways in which newspapers have adopted that television approach to, to, to do what, what I, with a slightly pejoratively referred to as cartoon journalism, that is, that they found a person who would fill in the bits that they needed to illustrate the point and they would then say what needed to be said, which wasn't, wasn't the richness that you get from good television. That we're, no, I'm talking about good television. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Over here, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so far, most of the, or the discussion has been about the main uh, media houses, and it's a, and as I understand it, the book's about the history of media in Australia. It seems to be a very rich and important area of media which hasn't been mentioned, and that's the alternative media which is really independent, and publications like the Tribune, for example, its successor, the Guardian. And there were many regional newspapers that go back to the 19th century. Um, sorry, it's 20th century. And I'm just wondering, is this covered in the book too? Uh, y yes, it is. That's that. Um, that's quite a legitimate point to make. The, the book is about um, both the history but also the contemporary practice of the media. So it is very much a picture of the media in 2014. Um, there are a number of entries that deal with... Um, alternative or community media. There's um, a, a, um, major entries on the labour press. Um, there's um, a major entry on the alternative media. There's entries on um, community radio and community television. Unfortunately, the community television entry is um, in the light of the announcement of the last week out of date. Um, but there is um, quite a sustained interest in, in the companion um, in those more sort of... Student, student papers, did you end up getting that? Student papers was a nightmare. Julianne and I exchanged so many emails about this and someone in the audience is laughing about my sort of 10-year obsession with why doesn't do someone do a history of, you know, the student media in Australia? No one's still done it. Um, yes, I did end up getting a um, young former student um, editor um, to, to do that with and I ended up coming in as, as co-author but that's really, um, it, it's, it's a fascinating story and I don't know why no one's done it. If anyone's interested, please please come and talk to me. <laughs> um, but um, there, there is also a um, sustained thread through the companion um, on the um, rural and regional media, um, so, um, newspapers, newspaper families, um, radio families such as the, the, the Janet Cameron Group, Grant Broadcasters, etc. Um, there's a really major entry by Kate Ames on regional broadcasting. All of the state-based press and radio entries um, pay attention um, to non-metropolitan as well as to metropolitan media. So I, I, I did really try to um, capture that in the allocation of entries and authors. Yeah. Um, is there another question? 
So is there actually? It's interesting. It's interesting because when I um, we were doing, I was doing the fourth estate entry for you, and you, I think you sent it was a, some scholarship by Rod. I think it was Rod, Rod Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick or Dennis Crow, one of them, um, which was interesting in that in terms of the sort of the the provincial newspapers, or provincial, you know, newspapers that set up in in tiny country towns, which were in a way the precursors of local government. You know that the newspaper and the and the local government role was very much done by the same individuals in that sort of settlement process that happened in the in the nineteenth century, especially. So it was a it was a it was it was just something that I hadn't been aware of. And in the in the time between when I'd done my earlier research and that you know Rod had done that next big lot of research, and it was it was I I felt very enriched by having that opportunity to read that that work at the time. Yeah. Um, yes, and and um, I should acknowledge Rod Kirkpatrick as the most prolific um, contributor it to the companion 28 entries. <laughs> um, so I'm flying him in for the launch in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so we've probably got time for one more question, if there is one. Yes, in the back. Um, this question goes to anyone. How is the advent of social media having an impact upon media media? Because the current media has systems for regulation and so forth, whereas social media doesn't, whereas anyone can set themselves up as having an opinion on X, Y and Z, which may or may not be true. How does that impact the future on media in this country or even the world? Well, just in terms of the narrower issue of regulation, there, there are major challenges um, for the existing regulatory bodies because they don't really have the capacity to regulate social media. Jared, would you like to say something given your involvement with the... Dare I mention the Australian Press Council? Uh, you happy with that, Julian? Yeah, good. Uh, look, I'm I'm a, I'm on the Press Council uh, as a, a a journalist member. There's there's public members and uh, publisher members, and then there's a small cohort of journalist members. Um, the major newspapers that produce online versions are so. It's the online version of those do fall under the purview of the. The press council, which is going to self-regulatory body that's, you know, funded by the major proprietors, and so there's, you know, lots of debate going on about it. It's you know, the viability of that, and then you've got the other end of it, which is, um, which is broadcast, which is regulated by a government authority called ACMA. Um, the press council has now got something like seven or eight um, online, but not owned by the major proprietors, um, publishers. Who are members of the press council, so that they subscribe to the, the you know the code that that's well the set of principles that the press council has developed over a number of years. So there's a little bit of it occurring, but I mean, who who controls you know kind of outrageous views in the blogosphere, or who moderates outrageous views views in the blogosphere? And the answer is no one does. Well, actually, the courts do. Um, ultimately, I suppose if you you know if, if if it's so outrageous or so egregious. Uh, and you can find someone who's got something other than a dollar company behind them, you could theoretically sue them. And there's a little bit of kind of a hint of that. But um, but so the answer is it's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's a, a something of a free-for-all out there. I, I wouldn't yeah. mind. Mm. Yeah, I, I have been worried for some time, as I think a lot of people are, as how journalism has changed. And I think this emphasis on the social media is leading journalism to change even more in a in a, uh, an unhappy direction. Uh, the old idea of the who, what, where, when, why 
uh, I know is old-fashioned, but it at least gave you a chance to talk about some facts before you started giving opinions. Uh, and nowadays we have editorials in the leads of our newspaper uh, articles, and, and they usually say something like, warning, um, what you're about to read can have uh, devastating effects on you. Um, uh, a crisis uh, uh, journalism. Uh, and I, I think that's a feature that's, that as long as there is standard newspapers and standard television, we would like to avoid as long as possible. Um, and I notice the newspapers are, are more and more quoting from social mm, media, yeah, aren't they, and, yeah. and tweet, tweeters yeah, and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So I, I'm concerned about that. Bridget, did you want to comment? Uh, look, I'll, I'll just make the observation that um, I, I did, for the first time in my career, really pay attention to new media um, as, as I was editing this project. So there's there are entries on um, social media, on um, blogging, etc. Um, and, and just on that, one of, one of the real challenges was this is a companion to the Australian media, but when you're dealing with something like social media, what is there to say about... Um, the history and the evolution of social media in Australia um, or um, the development of the internet in Australia, is there something unique to say? Are there particular case studies um, that you can use? Um, but another thing that I was um, struck by was the number of um, individual newspaper um, outlets that you know, were referred to throughout the companion that have now gone online in, in the last few years. So, so these are, say, religious newspapers that, you know, had a very small circulation and the internet has provided them with the capacity to, um, you know, occupy a digital space for considerably less. You know, they no longer have the cost of printing. Um, it's the content that they have to provide. Um, so there's a whole lot of entries which, which finish with, you know, this is now available online or... Um, purely online or, or, or whatever. So it, um, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but um, this sort of aspect um, penetrated a whole, um, a whole range of, of entries in the companion. Could, could I just add to that, that one of the things that I'm interested in in terms of sort of political theory and democratic theory um, is that a lot of weight for the last two, three hundred years has been placed on the press as being, in the words of one of the, a German scholar of this court, the feedback, the feedback mechanism of democratic system management. That is that the press and the media provo provides a very active role in the, in the operation of, of the political system. And it seems to me that the, the, the process of transference to social media and a much more dispersed sort of um, um, media framework that, that, we've, that we're seeing to develop um, is not sufficiently robust for that sort of level of expectation in terms of you know the role the special role that we've 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 ascribed to the media. So I'm really interested to see how this plays out um, in its fragmentation in terms of of what happens in a in a political system um, which doesn't have a strongly doesn't have a strong mass media doesn't well, we we fortunately still have a media public media system where which is addressing citizens rather than addressing consumers but in a very consumer driven media world or in a, in a very fragmented one and I think that um, uh, this is just speculation on my part, but it's, it seems to me that part of the the disquiet that we've got in the political systems at the moment is partly because that unifying voice that was once there f coming out of that sort of broader mass media model um, has dissipated and it's not been re yet replaced by something else. And so it seems to me that there's a really interesting sort of 
very uncharted terrain in terms of what this is going to mean or what it is meaning in terms of, of that sort of interrelationship, in terms of that feedback mechanism. Louisa. Well, I'd like uh, to thank all our panellists, uh, our Chair Julianne Schultz, uh, Gerald Stone, Gerard Noonan and Editor of the uh, Companion to the Media, Bridget Griffin-Foley. Uh, this is the end of the evening where we do a few promotions. So don't forget, you can pick up one of these outside. So it is, is the book which we've been talking about tonight. And if you fill it in and I guess give them a call, you can get that discount by tomorrow. Uh, Julianne and, and Griffith, Universe, uh, Griffith Review have very kindly uh, put out this lovely little uh, uh, a companion, which is um, little, little <laughs> essays, which are Walkley winning, um, two of the Walkley winning Griffith Review essays. So that's a lovely little read and a nice little pocket size. This is the last of our uh, talks like this for this year. Uh, next month we will be featuring the winner, the finalists in the Walkley photography um, uh, um, announcements and they will be that exhibition will be in the foyer of the library for two months so it's a fantastic exhibition if, if you want to come and see that and we'll also have the documentary screening so these are finalists in the Walkley Documentary Award and they'll be screened on the 17th and the 19th of um, October here in the library. Uh, also don't forget Storyology if you're interested in these discussions about uh, media we have a four-day summit of media and creativity which will be held on the 1st to the 4th of December at the Paddington Town Hall and if you go to our website uh, walkleys.com you will find all the information there about storyology. So thank you all for coming tonight and once again thanks to our panellists. Hello and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. 